When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Hey, everyone. This is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. I've been needing a quick getaway with my family, and the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the perfect vehicle to take us there. It has standard third-row seating, so I'm able to pack my entire family, plus pets, in the car while also having enough room for our camping essentials. Available H-Track all-wheel drive will get us through any dirt trails, and available dual wireless charging pads will ensure we never have to worry about getting stuck with a dead phone in the middle of nowhere. Visit HyundaiUSA.com. Or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store. I know you'll be alright Even when times get hard And you feel like you're in the dark You will see Just how beautiful life can be When you soften your heart You can finally start To live your Truthiest Life. Welcome back to The Truthiest Life. It's your host, Lisa Haim. So excited to have you back for another week. Thank you all for supporting this podcast, for leaving your reviews, your ratings on Apple iTunes. I know they changed the format a little bit on there. So now there's a follow versus a subscribe. Go ahead and make sure you're following and leave a nice little review if you're feeling so inclined to. This episode today is with my friend Tiffany Louise, who's a relationship expert and coach. And it's a super inclusive episode. So before before you shut it down for, oh, I'm not in a relationship, or I have a great relationship, or I'm in a crappy relationship, for whatever reason, you possibly feel excluded from this conversation like you couldn't benefit. I promise you, everyone can benefit from the way Tiffany talks about our personal responsibility within a relationship, which really begins with our relationship to ourself. So that one goes out to my single people who possibly want to pursue a relationship in the future. This is the perfect time to get clear on your needs. And if you're in a relationship, it's also a great time to really evaluate what are your needs, are they being met, and what is your personal responsibility in getting those needs met. So what I really love about Tiffany's approach is that she's really empowering us to get clear on who we are, giving us permission to have needs and really think about all the things that we bring into a relationship subconsciously or things that we get comfortable with or our own expectations and really reworking that so that when we are showing up, we are showing up to the present. Not with hope of things getting better or the idea that we can change a partner or make 
the relationship different than it currently is. It's really about accepting And then using your voice, which can be so scary to do, to really make sure that who you are is coming through and that the person on the other end is the right person to receive what you're giving. Anytime I talk about my relationship with my husband, Evan, or past relationships, it's met with so much, please give us more, please give us more. And I think all of us want to really hear about the nitty gritty in relationships that we don't see on Instagram. You know, all of us have a behind the scenes of these little fights where we expect our partner to read our mind or, you know, even the single girl struggle of being so tired of dating and feeling so exhausted. So whoever you are, whatever gender you are as well, I think this applies to all of us and is really allows us an opportunity to take a second, to take a step back and evaluate our personal responsibility of what we contribute to the quality of the relationships. So Tiffany's going to get into it all, including how to stop looking at your ex's Instagram. I know what that can feel like when you just can't stop stalking and it's the most addicting yet damaging behavior for yourself. Why we oftentimes as women, but maybe not just women, feel really vulnerable when we receive, when we accept a kind gesture or a meal and how to kind of lean into that and be okay with receiving how to stop expecting our partners to read our mind and what sort of relationship we actually create when we don't communicate really clearly. And then I think really importantly, how to safely voice your needs, because that can be really hard for me, especially when I feel triggered or shut down. I kind of lose access to my voice, which I'll talk about in this episode. And Tiffany really provides tools for getting out of that state of shutdown and refinding your throat and your voice and coming up with the words to say what you feel in a really safe way. And then one thing I really love that she talks about is the grief that comes with accepting your partner exactly as they are today. Evan and I, my husband, we know this one firsthand. We had a great honeymoon phase after month six or about a year in. We really started to try and change each other to be either our potential, what we saw the other person could be, or how to better fit into each other's lives. And all that did was left us both very bitter and stuck. And it was hard because we still had love for each other, but we also had this resentment. And it was only until we really put that aside that things got better. But I love that she's talking about the grief that kind of comes with giving up on the hope that things are going to change. I don't think that's spoken about really anywhere else, or I've never heard it at least. So again, this episode is for everyone, and I hope you love it as much as I do. And you give Tiffany a follow. She puts great content out there in a way that just isn't overwhelming or noisy. And she's fantastic as are all of you. I hope you all have a great weekend. Thank you for being one of my friends and I'll see you next week on The Truthiest Life. Welcome back to The Truthiest Life. So excited to introduce you to my longtime friend, (laughs) Instagram friend, but long time, uh, we've followed each other forever, Tiffany Louise, who is a coach, an author, and a speaker. So welcome. Thank you for having me. I feel like this has been, I don't know, what do you think, five or six years in the making? (laughs) I know. And I think it's funny for my audience to hear, like most of the people that I bring on, I have had a relationship with for quite some time in some way. So it's amazing that I've we connected so early on and I've, I'm thankful to be on the receiving end of your energy Mm -hmm. and your growth and your coaching by way of Instagram, not personally. Same. I was quoting you to a friend the other day. We were having a conversation about 
food body relationship. And I was like, for me, someone who's worked, you know, in a mental health capacity with on the spectrum with people struggling with disordered eating patterns, all of it, I learned so much from you after a lifetime of, you know, clinical education. I just love what you bring to the world. And I, I will say you are one of the people when I think about who offers me the most just connection and whose content I'm always like, let me click on what she's writing. It's you. You're like top five. I love how you've handled yourself this year. I'm just so grateful that we're friends and that we're now having this conversation so I can share you with, you know. Thank you. It means a lot coming from you as somebody I've too can look to for a place of calm energy value. And, you know, you're also a mental health expert. I don't know if that's what you'd call yourself, but you know, sometimes showing up to a place that is so noisy, I can kind of doubt myself and say, am I doing this? Am I doing this right? Am I adding to a place where there's so much, you know, already so much information. So it's so helpful to hear from you. And I look up to you and the value, especially in the most challenging year of all, let me say, (laughs) like, how the heck do I show up and trying to figure it out very quickly? You know, I think we both kind of took a good look at that figuring that out yeah so before we get into your figuring that out specifically you call yourself a coach versus a therapist yet you are a certified therapist a licensed therapist right yeah so at this time i'm not doing any clinical work in my practice but for many many years before i did and so i make that delineation to sort of manage expectations i will talk through that lens oftentimes online or in whatever you know context but in my private practice i'm just doing coaching and i sort of see certain things to be processed in diff- in those different arenas i think certain um, topics are really more appropriate for a therapeutic container i love therapy i've been in therapy my whole life you and i share that <laughs> affinity you know, I, I've done it every week in quarantine. And so I, it's not that I don't not value it. It's just that I've shifted in my practice to the way that I work being a bit more, it's a coaching style. I always say a good therapist should do everything a coach does and a good coach should not do everything a therapist does. Right. Right. So that's the thing. Most people who are coaches are not therapists. So it's interesting to hear you as a therapist say, I actually work as a coach. Yeah. What is the difference though, when you say like clinically, because many people work one-on-one private practice, not in the clinical setting, you know, like I see a therapist. So I see a therapist and it doesn't feel quote unquote clinical, but what, what is different about your style of how you're working with people? Yeah. So I see sort of the container and the potential for what it can hold and what it can process. So I see therapy as like a funnel down to the root of whatever the issue, and not that this can't be handled or dove into in that way in coaching, but it's like, say I'm talking about something at work and like my boss reminds me of my father and in therapy, I would go to that. I would funnel down and I would say, tell me about that. When, and how did this story come? And it's not that you don't acknowledge the past in coaching, or at least in the framework for my work, I don't process it in depth. I, I personally, and I know this is a time of teletherapy and I think that's amazing. And I think the way that that's increased, you know, accessibility is awesome. Mm. But I think there is like, if in terms of like certain types of trauma work, I think there's a really beautiful thing about a container where you have the capacity to see someone in person, lay eyes on them, you know, and in terms of clinical severity, if someone is clinically depressed or experiencing debilitating mental illness of any kind, I believe that that's best supported 
first in therapy, you can have a coach as well, but um, those issues should be addressed with someone who has the capacity to hold them, to understand a referral system of access mm. to escalation of support. If, if someone's coming to me, I want the container that I provide to be enough for whatever they present. And I don't think coaching should be, if, especially if you don't have and I know this is, you know, a little tough to say, it may be tough for some people to hear because I think a lot of people are practicing out of their scope. Um, you talk about this in your industry, but I think coaching people really need to be educated and understand the breadth and width of what it is they're treating certain risks. I mean, even things like mindfulness exercises can trigger trauma. Mm -hmm. And I don't think right. people are really aware of that. And so that's where I make the delineation. So in coaching, I'm, we acknowledge the past, but we don't, we, we are much more forward focused. Mm -hmm. A lot of the time, the people who come to work with me have already done a lot of therapy, not always, but they've done that. They're aware and they're still feeling stuck and they're wanting to shift what they're doing moving forward. And in coaching, are you able to show up a little bit more as me who you, yeah, yeah. as who you are, not when you're a therapist or coach, like you can tell your own stories in some way if it's helpful. Yes. And now I think some therapists can do that as well. And I still keep that minimal. Anything that I share about myself is always for an intended benefit. I've mm. already processed my own. I'm not using my work to do that. But yeah, mm. and, I, and I am a bit more just present and a bit more directive a lot. And it depends on the therapist style. Some therapists are really just about letting you process and have very few interjections or suggestions. I tend to be a bit more directive because people are really coming to me saying, I don't do this well. What are the scripts? How can I re-narrate this story for myself? So I'm, I am a bit more, I think, participatory in my Right. Coaching. A little bit less like, is it like uh, where a therapist will say, how did that make you feel? Or why do you think that is? You're kind of like, okay, well, here's how you can flip the script. Next time you feel blah, 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 insert this word, this language, this tool, this exercise. Yes. How can I make a suggestion in the future? This might be a way to phrase that, that feels empowered. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's really fantastic to kind of work with a therapist who functions as a coach because you're really able to decide, is it better to go forward or is it better to go back here? Yes. <laughs> like you have the credentials, but you advertise yourself as a coach so that people know what they're signing up for a little bit more and um, the expectations are super clear. Yeah. And I have lots awesome. of conversations on the front end because I have no scarcity around clients. I trust everyone mm. will come to me in the time that they need to. And if it's not, I, I refer so many people out. Hey, I have a great therapist in Chicago. I actually think you might be better suited using your precious resources in this way. Um, so, I, you know, I'm a social worker. So that's the whole like connection to resources part of me that I love. Right. I think that's a, the really good sign of a, a confident anything, a confident doctor or a confident woman or a confident, you know, nutritionist, I feel like as well. Like I too, you know, really moved away from that scarcity, which once existed into uh, here's my friend who's fantastic, you know, and better suited for you, I think of, at this time. So it's awesome. So when it does come to accepting patients, what type of clients are you specifically working with? I only work with women at this point or women who are people who identify as women and are usually wanting to be in the feminine energy in their relationship. And so that has become an interesting specialty of mine as my work has evolved. I say we teach what we need, once needed to learn and are still, you know, in process of learning. And so for me, I've had through the journey of my 
education going from clinical work and all this family systems to really realizing the pieces of the relationship puzzle that were missing that weren't taught to me in regular school that I put together this whole little constellation and library of like this weird coach from over here and this woman who only focuses on this. And so I have this very interesting niche. I work with a lot of women who have been able to create success in their maybe professional lives or some are working on their professional lives and they have great friendships, but they they are wanting to make that relationship piece uh, a big part of their life. And they are struggling to do that. They are getting out of unhealthy relationship patterns. That's not all I work with, but I would say that that's probably 80% of my clients are focusing there. So specifically people who are trying to improve how they either enter or show up in an existing or future relationship with a romantic partner. Yes. And I would say first with themselves and then with the relationship as the byproduct. That's a great, great distinction. So let's talk a little bit first about your own stuff. And then let's move a little bit more general into the amazing lessons that I've benefited from, from just your Instagram alone. So starting with like your, your own stuff, it appears that your marriage is really healthy and safe and comfortable and took a journey to get there nonetheless. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So will you tell us about some times or an instance where you stayed too long in a past relationship that you knew was incorrect for you? I think that's just something we see all the time. People afraid to leave, even though they don't want to be in the relationship anymore. Yeah. Even though the writing's on the wall. So Mm. I consider myself, you know, in recovery from codependency. Um, So I have a family history, lots of lineage of addiction, my mother, and she, I have permission to tell all these stories, but she's really one of the most remarkable humans I've ever met. But she went to treatment for codependency when I was three years old for nine months, like something that doesn't even get covered by insurance now, but she went to outpatient. She recognized the relationship dynamic with my father. She put us immediately into therapy and she was like, wow, my, this was in my family system. This was my stepfather. This is everywhere. I don't understand this. How does this impact our family system? How do I heal from this? And she did the work for all of her healing though. There were still those familial patterns of learning how to sense into other people and meet other people's needs. And if everyone else outside of me is okay, then I'm okay. And for a good part of my life, I sort of existed out there, out in other people's hearts and other people's minds and other people's feelings. And so how this translated into relationships. And I think some of this was family systems and some of it was like culture influencing how I showed up. You know, I had two very long relationships, one with whom I was engaged and we're still close friends and we have a wonderful relationship. We weren't meant to travel down that path, but there was a lot of learning that was early, you know, teens into twenties and many, many years. The part that makes me great at what I do is the part that sees potential, that sees hope, that sees the fullest reality of what every human being can be because I get a front row seat to that. But I always say in relationships, we really want to deal in reality. It's the one place where I think hope can be dangerous. And I had a pattern of seeing things for how they could be sometimes and how they could potentially be instead of how they net were, like baseline, right? So I have absolutely stayed too long. And I think that I wouldn't have had it any other way. I had conversations, I explained myself, things would change for a little bit, and then they'd go right back to where they were. And I really struggled to do the work of accepting people for who they are and what they're capable of 
And then understanding what I needed. I thought I could live with things that as I grew up, I learned I couldn't. I thought I could tolerate behaviors that as I lived in them, I realized made me crazy, made me anxious, made me really unsteady. So I think that's part of the reason that people are drawn to me. They see someone who has Now, I don't ever profess to have any mastery. I don't ever profess to have anything figured out. I think we are always evolving human beings. And I don't ever profess to know the future of my marriage because it's a really healthy container now. I don't make those promises. But I have, for myself, learned to embody my needs, wants, desires, understand what makes me feel safe, give that to myself first, and then learn to give that to myself in partnership. And that was not the case for the majority of Mm -hmm. my 20s. So codependency is trying to fulfill your own needs by way of fulfilling the needs of your partner. I think so. I think that how I see it is someone else's problems, issues, struggles, challenges, whether it's codependency in a relationship with someone who's struggling with addiction or caretaking or mental illness of whatever sort. It's the, I'm only okay if you're okay. And I live over in your world, fixing, managing, controlling, regulating you in order to regulate myself. Um, That's how I see it. And that was a, a long road to heal, to come back and sit within me, to let people release people to their own paths release people to their own choices. I think in accepting people for where they are, there's a lot of grief. There's a lot of sadness. I think one of the hardest things that I've witnessed in this life is to love people and hope for better for them and they're not ready to choose it. Especially when you say that you can kind of see in people the hope of where they should be going when you have that vision for them and you know their potential and their possibilities and you also have that inner coach in you that wants to help them get there. (laughs) But essentially, like you said in the beginning, hope is not healthy in a relationship. And that is so powerful to sit with because I think we sit in these relationships, like you said, or like you kind of began to say for too long because we can see where they can go, but that's not the reality of right now. The reality of right now is what your relationship is. Right now, your relationship with your current husband is a healthy one. You don't profess to know the future of its health because obviously those variables can change. And I, it's scary to say that, but I kind of feel the same way. And I just think it's so different than what we, or what I, I didn't really, I, I didn't really see any normalcy in, in relationships around me growing up, but speaking generally, what we see as people, I feel like we see women being the caretaker of the male. Maybe that's too general and not specific to everybody, but that's kind of the general theme that we've seen on TV alone in the media, you know, and it's hard to recognize that that's not our job. You have to show up first for yourself. Yes. And it was always a way of leveraging power, right? And one of the things that I've recognized from treating people in addiction treatment for many for over a decade is that there's, it's like, we get to be the benevolent one with all of the wisdom and helping you, but real, real relational health is you feed me, I feed you, I feed, mm. I feed myself first and we pour into one another. And so when I was mm. always sort of like the helper, I was never receiving, I was never allowing a healthy, you know, and think about it. If you're the giver, you're going to call in people who don't want to give, <laughs> Or you're going to get people who are starting to give and you're going to shut them off by over giving back. So it's a really fascinating dynamic where we think it's benevolent, but it's an an attempt to regulate ourselves, to be needed, Mm -hmm. to be helpful, 
to avoid the vulnerability of receiving, that was deeply discomforting for me to learn. Let's go there. What does that mean? What is the, the uncomfortability? How did you say it? The vulnerability of receiving. When someone can give and give freely and give without expectation, there's not a score being kept. And for me, and I, a lot of the women that I work with who've had wounding around this in their family systems or in past relationships, it's like, I don't ever want to be in debt to you. Because if I'm in debt to you, I, I owe you. You can say that I took too much. So many women are really, really self-conscious of being a gold digger or like, that's a mm. huge story in our culture. Like, I better pay him back. It's got to be even. You know, receiving is really this like opening up your heart and allowing something to settle, receiving a compliment, receiving a gesture. I mean, I would be like, no, I'm fine. I'll pick up the dinner and walk there in the snow. Like that was mm-hmm. kind of some of the crazy stuff I would do to not be an imposition because I felt that at times in my childhood that I was an imposition. And so I had to learn to take up space and allow people to give to me. And I had to just be like, thank you. Even though, you know, it was, I was wrestling with it. So yeah, I I do believe not for everybody, for some people who grow up just like understanding what it feels like to receive and then give, and there's a dance there. Great. But a Mm -hmm. lot of people don't have that historical. Right. And a lot of people, they think if you take, you will have to give something back and yes, be in debt, like yes. you said, or constantly going back and forth. So the ability to learn to find somebody who's going to give and receive from that person, knowing that there are no strings attached, can be really hard to unlearn if previously everything you've been given has had strings, strings attached. attached. <laughs> 100%. One of the ways I give back in that is by joyfully receiving, by fully appreciating what's coming by saying, thank you, this feels so good. And I always tell my clients, not in this like peasant way, not in this like, oh, thank you, sir, for the crust of bread, which like, cause sometimes we get into that scarcity, like, oh my God, he actually did something nice for me. Like we want to receive in this like magnanimous, like I believe I'm deserving, but I'm deeply grateful. No, you just triggered something in my mind where it kind of works recently, at least a little opposite in my own relationship. And I, I know you talk a lot about the power of language. And yes. I think these words, when it comes to giving and receiving, are hugely important. Thank you changes the energy current of a relationship versus just thank you versus, oh my God, thank you so much. Or and you, you shouldn't have, you know, like going on and on yes. or even sorry. But, you know, my husband has been working like crazy, Evan. And lately he's been coming home and he's like, like waddling through the door. So tired. And he's like, sorry, sorry, sorry. And I'm like, you don't say sorry, you know, because like that doesn't feel right. And I was like, and I had to say to him, I was like, just say thank you. Or I appreciate you for waiting for me or for being patient while we figure this out, you know? And I, I know it's funny because he's the male in yes. this, in this story, but I think both, both people can bring that energy and sorries are important. I'm not anti-apologies by any means, but it elevates to feel seen and appreciated with language. I was a little bit tangential, but no, I don't think it's a, a tangential at all because I think what we all want to do is be appreciated and, and deeply. Like w- when someone sees you and sees what you're doing, whatever your love language is, and says, I see you, I appreciate this moment, this energy, the staying up, the driving to pick me up, we feel seen. And that is the stuff that deposits in your bank account. That is the stuff that predicts long-term success in relationships. It's deeply important. So I'm glad you 
went there. Well, sorry made me feel like he owes me something. And then it was, you know, for like maybe a glimmer, like this feeling of, yeah, you owe me, you know, like I, I'm so great. You owe me just for a second. I felt that. And I didn't want that. That felt ugly in my body. That didn't feel like the relationship that I want to be in. So I had to kind of, you know, tell him what to say, whatever. And then it brings us back to no power trips, you know, just seeing each other on the same playing field and being respectful of one another. And I think that males or females bring a lot of sorry, sorry, sorries into the relationship. Don't get me wrong. Again, apologies right. are huge when, when one does something. we don't have that, we have a whole other problem. <laughs> right. <laughs> so sorries are okay. But I think if we lean into like a different language could be, I know this is hard for you and staying up late. And I just want you to know how much it means to me to see your face when I walk in the door, right? Like that's an acknowledgement, but also an appreciation. It changes the current a lot. I think we have to go through the journey to learn it. Like you said that you were engaged to somebody who you were with in your teens and 20s. And I know plenty of people have healthy relationships that met their partner in high school. Totally fine. But for me, I was such a different person that... I can't even imagine if I had married, you know, who I thought I would have married when I was 25 or 24 or 23. I mean, I hadn't even gone through all these lessons of how to communicate, of signs of codependency, of checking all that baggage that I've brought from my childhood. For some people, I hope that that's true, but I haven't met anybody who really solidly in their 20s understands what a relationship can give you and what it can't. And that personal responsibility work of understanding who you are, taking responsibility for your own happiness first. I think that's what we're developing oftentimes through those years. So yeah, I I mean, I look back and hot mess express and bless her. (laughs) She was learning. She was growing. She was doing the best she could, but thank God for unanswered prayers. (laughs) Seriously. Hey, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast, How Rude, Tanneritos. As a nostalgic voice from your past, I'm here to remind you that amongst the stressful and chaotic existence we live in 2024, you deserve to get away. It's time for a vacation, no matter when you're hearing this. And let me tell you how you'll get there. The 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Want to bring the family to the mountains with the Santa Fe's available H-Track all-wheel drive? Well, it's got standard third-row seating and available dual wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. You know what I mean. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Are you tired of your scented cleaning products smelling and cleaning like meh? Then it's time for an upgrade with the power of Clorox Sentiva. With an uplifting scent that smells like coconut, Clorox Sentiva gives you powerful clean like Clorox, but a feeling like <sighs> being transported to a tropical island retreat. Imagine putting your phone on Do Not Disturb, tuning out all the constant, just the feeling of warm sand in between your toes and a fruity drink in your hand. The ones with the little umbrella. Refresh your home to feel like an all-inclusive vacation by getting Clorox Sentiva. Also available in grapefruit and lavender scents at a nearby retail store. Rain or shine, every day is a great day for fishing, right? You got rain gear, but you can't overlook sunny day gear. A Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie has you covered on the sunniest days. Like literally. I mean, who wouldn't trade a sunburn for a trophy fish? But why do it if you don't have to? 
especially when this Solar Stream Elite hoodie is built with broad spectrum UV protection. We're talking UPF 50, and it has airflow so you don't overheat. And what's the alternative? Putting down the rod every half hour so you can slather on some sunscreen. Seems like an easy choice to me. Columbia PFG has you covered with their Castback TC shoe. Its OmniMax cushioning and traction system helps if you're on your feet a lot, say, fighting a fish. Not to mention keeping you sure-footed on a wet, rocking boat. So if you're going to be spending long days out on the water, and I sincerely hope that you will be, head over to Columbia.com PFG and shop all their performance fishing gear. You have so much value on your Instagram, but you also haven't posted on your static feed in almost a year. Yeah. As such an intentional person and also somebody who prior to this, like your most recent stuff, which was almost a year ago, is so hugely helpful. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious what you're, as somebody who looks up to you, but also just curious in general, What has made you take what seems like a step back from social media in a certain way? I know you still post on your stories and I love to see them, but there's a difference. No, big difference. And it was intentional. um, And it's felt really good, the break. You know, I'm going to tread lightly because I am still forming all of this and defining my relationship with social media. I do have a plan because there's a call on my heart. I'll be frank and say, I am happier off it. I was like the person dragged kicking and screaming into social media. I was, I was always private. I was the last one of my friends to have an account. One of my friends who's a big um, like food media blogger, it was like the one who was like, Hey, you really need to do this. She, she like helped me do it however many years ago. And I was like, Oh, I'm so, you know, I don't know. It's not my comfort zone to be that public. Maybe in the beginning, there was some of that, but right, I'm not doing it to source anything for myself in terms of importance or, or value, or like, I don't rely on that anymore. I have an internal system of, of where my value is found. But what I found is that I was doing it to be of service. And I'm so glad that you feel like it's valuable because I, I don't post nearly as much as other people, definitely in the last year, but like, it was always super thoughtful, like, and downloads, like, like a voice from God saying, this is important. And it never fails. I would hear it and I would be like, really, I got to write that out right now. And then I would put it out. And then my inbox would be full of like, I needed this today. I needed this today. So I know that I'm intended to serve there, but I had to back up, take a look at how it's been unfolding online and see how I want to participate and how I don't. I've been watching, as I'm sure many of you who are listening have, just some really problematic permission to behave in certain ways that the online space is given. I have watched this sort of policing of people and their content and their lives. And I was bullied. I don't want to say bullied. I had some really problematic situations when I was younger with young girls in school. And if you're all, any of you are listening, I forgive you all. I love you all. I was a child too, who made mistakes, but it's sort of like when you're in the group and you see all the girls turning on that one girl and you're happy, it's not you for the moment, but you know that if they're capable of that, it'll come to you eventually. That's how I felt about social media. There's one issue in particular, most recently that is sort of like encapsulated how I felt watching what's happened with, you know, a a certain high profile motivational speaker. And yes, yes, perhaps the a hundred percent, the error in some of the messaging, but the response has just been deeply concerning because I have been in the business of helping people change. And I can tell you, there's not much that I can say I know for certain, but I know for certain that people don't change in the way 
in the energy with which we are approaching trying to change some things. And it creates performance and it doesn't create cellular deep-rooted change. And I needed to take a step back and I watched sort of the anger and all of this stuff coming up and right, rightfully so on many of these topics. But I watched thought leaders, people who I once looked up to behaving in ways that I could not get, get behind, um, shaming people in their comments. Well, you need to go read this book. And I was like, this isn't the energy that I really want to participate in. And I'm, I've worked too hard on my codependency to live in response to people who I am, I don't monetize my platform in the ways that a lot of other people do. It's majority me giving to share and help. And so there's a lot of stuff there for me. I definitely know that it's a beautiful opportunity to impact people in many ways, but I think my boundaries have to tighten up the way that I am so freely engaging in DMs. And I just love that dynamic, but I think it can get really problematic at times if people feel like they have the right to access to you. I think that every single thing you write is supposed to encapsulate the experience of every human being is impossible. And never am I intending to do that. Well, what about this? Well, of course, you're right. What about that? That's 100% right. But I can't mm. put all of that in. And I'm only speaking to this person who maybe have ha- has had this experience. And so I'm, I believe in transformation. I believe in change. I just haven't felt like the energy at large, not in totality, totality um, but at large has been really toxic. So I took a step back. I had my own human experience this year. I served all my clients. Thankfully, I have a business that has been able to really do well without... <laughs> <laughs> any marketing. So that's, that's my thought. And I, I'm awesome. some, some thought leaders who are now embodying or, you know, stepping into this dialogue in a different way. And it gives me hope. And I hope so reemerging. Yes. People are reemerging with a different energy than that they first had or similar to you, they took a step back yes. and then they're showing up. Yes. Or new people I haven't found before who I'm like, wow, mm. I yes. hear you. And I see the nuance in your conversation. And I see the, I, I just don't think that we can, if you're a teacher and, and I've always had, I'm going to be a little vulnerable here. One of my defects or one of my issues is for the average person, I don't hold you to this standard, but if you are supposed to know better, I have a real problem with someone who's a teacher or a thought leader or a helper or a therapist, and they're supposed to know better. It's their job to know better. And when they don't like, this was the stuff that got me in trouble in old agencies where I'd be rolling my eyes. Like what is going on? That is not the right clinical move. Like I have a hard time with that because you, you have a duty to protect the people that you're impacting. So I just think that nothing changes if we're acting from the same energy of what we're criticizing. And that's what I've seen long rant to what, what, what my step back has been about, but it's empowering because, you know, you see somebody who has a big following take a step back and you think, oh, they must be coiling up, but really you're thriving <laughs> in your practice. Not that I thought that about you, but there's so many assumptions because, you know, we think what we see is what is. So we think that if we can't see you, that you're in hiding, but really you have been really thriving in your personal life. Resting, I'm healing. Like I've had a lot, you know, of time to just be in nature not on a plane, not running around the world like I used to be. I lived in Chicago and Michigan and I was on a plane every other week and getting to know the deer in my backyard, (laughs) which is a privilege. And I'm aware of that to have that experience during the pandemic. Um, And also I was doing my part. I was one of the people who could take a step back and not contribute to spread. And so I was able to quarantine and not be a contributor. That's 
really empowering. And I think it's just helpful to know that like all of us have different roles in how we contribute. And sometimes it's not with global impact in that moment. But I'm glad to hear that you may be coming back because your information about relationships that you have put on, I go back and watch all the time. Um, And one of them, uh, not so recently, but it's not so far down on your feed because it was, you haven't posted so much, but we're talking about 2020 here. If you do head to Tiffany's page, which we'll put in the link in the show notes, you talk about looking at your ex's Instagram and why we do that, why it's normal and how to stop. And I think there's very few people that can't relate to checking in on an ex on social media in some way or trying to find that info on the X. So let's just talk about that because we all do it, yes. men and women, yes. do it to each other. And it is, it's real. It's real. And I always say like, you know, if anything falls through and like some of my friends and I's, you know, businesses, we can always set up a PI, you know, agency <laughs> and like find so-and-so's sister's aunts on Facebook and what they had at their birthday party a year ago. I don't live in that energy anymore, but I used to. So yeah, it's normal. And I think that's the first thing is it can feel really shameful. And when we speak truth and we validate an experience, we can eliminate some of that shame. I think there's a lot of layers to it. One, I think it's just curiosity. Never before has this information been available to us, right? Until the age of social, you know, if you broke up with someone, you would have to see them if they were picking up their kids at the same time as your kids, or if like they worked at your business. Otherwise it was like, you didn't have access to this information. It was done um, in terms of peeking in behind the curtain of their lives. So I think it's just a natural human curiosity when someone was a, a part of the daily rhythm and cadence of your life to be questioning what they're doing and where they are. And I think depending on how the relationship ended, if there's stories of like, why wasn't I chosen? What is he doing now? Is she better than I am? Like all of the things that what that we navigate through a breakup um, are, or just satisfaction, like, well, still doing the same old stuff. I made the right choice. You know, there's so many layers and I hear the breadth and width of it all in, in my work, but I think it's normal. But I think what we have to do is get conscious about it because social, as we know, I'm sure most people, you know, have watched like the social dilemma and like all of these pieces of information that really show how these platforms are wired to get us on and keep us on. I don't care if TikTok tells you like to go to sleep after a certain point, the whole goal is for you to be on engaging. And it's very difficult when you know at your fingertips, you can go get this access to information to stop. So we have to first get conscious of the cost because oftentimes it's like an increase in anxiety causes the compulsive behavior. There's a difference between compulsive and impulsive and compulsive behavior is usually a response to an elevation in anxiety. We do the behavior. It brings the anxiety down temporarily, gives us the fix. The anxiety rises again, we go check again. So it's really this addictive cycle. And we think the information for the moment, because we can say that's where he is. He's on this trip. I know where she, what she's doing. I always call it a leaky bucket. It, it's like the thing that you think feels make, makes you feel better, but it quickly drains out and you're left on empty again. So true. So it's to notice, like, when am I doing this? Is it Sunday nights when I'm feeling lonely? Is it when I have had a bad date go wrong and then that leaves me thinking about, you know, my ex and I want to go see what he's doing and just really be honest with ourselves about the cost. And what I found is, is as people heal, especially when it's like a toxic 
relationship with someone like on the narcissistic spectrum, because I see a lot of people who have navigated that, you get to this point where you're so self-honoring, where you wake up and you might have the thought and you say, not today. Like, I don't want to take myself down that path. I don't know what I'll see. I don't know how I'll feel. I want to guard my energy. I want to guard my heart. And that is a process of healing. So expecting ourselves to be there right away. What I found is as people bring the anchor back into their lives, because unhealthy relationships take us out of ourselves, right? And so healing is about coming back into me, into my my life, my feelings. And when we come back here, we want to be a good steward of how we feel. We don't want to do things that hurt ourselves. So it's a process. It takes a while. Do I still once in a while, like maybe like twice a year go, huh, I wonder what, let me take candor. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I'm in a place where it doesn't do anything to me, you know? And I think like, if your current partner knew, would they be okay with it? If I look at my ex's social media, I'll often tell my husband, yes. not in like a confessing type of way, but just like, Oh, I saw what Dededa is doing. They actually moved to this town. And, you know, we, we have a very comfortable relationship, so that's okay. There are some people that wouldn't want that. And you have to, I think, respect your partner, current partner if they, I don't know, are the jealous type or if they can't process that that has different meaning to you than it may to them. I don't know about I that. I think that's but very I'm, wise. Because I still talk to my ex that we were engaged back then. And I'll tell my husband now, like, hey, I talked to so-and-so. He's yes, over here. He's, you know, and like, if there's a transparency that builds trust. For sure. Yeah. I had an ex and um, we talked about relationships. I did a solo relationship podcast where I talked about like the three significant exes, but one of them dumped me and it left me, you know, super wounded, rejected. And it really left me in the best place because it's what opened the true door to me and my healing. But in the moment, it didn't feel like this. And this was the early weeks of the breakup. So shortly thereafter, for whatever reason, I had access to his email and I was incessant about checking it and knowing what card he was buying and this and that. And like you said, like I became aware of how crappy it was making me feel and how, even though it was so good to check it, as soon as I did, it didn't feel good. And I actually told him, and I I don't know if I said, Hey, I'm checking your email, but I maybe said something more like, Oh, I auto logged on to your, to your account. Can you change your password? So I don't have access to that anymore. So it was kind of, it was confessing, you know, in some way, cause I did feel guilty about it, but I I definitely, I guess. Yeah. Like it wasn't a full confession. It was a micro confession. This was, you know, eight years ago. Enough to get the information delivered. Yeah. But sometimes you have to put that hard stop out there of what doesn't feel good, even though like that initial felt good. But shortly thereafter, I was spiraling. The anxiety was higher than where I thought it would be. It literally could be like a drug where you, oh, let me just take this drug and then I'll feel better. And then you take the drug and you feel better, but then you need more of the drug. (laughs) So it's, it's funny how that kind of mirrors addiction in some way. And it does the same thing in your brain. And you mentioned that it's an addictive pattern. And and what I see and what I experience is when you're in a relationship that there isn't trust, these behaviors are bred in the relationship, checking follower counts. They're not responding to my text, but I can see that they're online. So Mm. these behaviors are already sort of groomed in the relationship. And then when there's the breakup, it's like, this is, and what I find is people shame themselves for it. But what I really see is women are trying, the women I work with, because I can just speak to that, are trying to get information so they can make a decision. Mm. There's distrust, there's behaviors, and they don't have proof. So they're looking at follower counts. They're looking at who they're liking because they're trying to say, I want to know so I can 
not be in this crazy making place. So there's a lot of women who experience this. And then when the relationship ends, that behavior has already been working out in the gym and is really strong in your pattern. Wake up, check, go to bed, check. And so we have to undo the patterns that were built sometimes in really unhealthy relationship patterns. And you talk about something that I think is so interesting, which you said is so often women show up not trusting the male. Um, Are they cheating? Are they lying about where they are? Are they, I mean, I definitely brought that in my early years of a relationship. I definitely untangled myself from that messy mindset somehow too. But you also say that women or the other partner, let's just say for people who are maybe in same sex partnerships or same gender partnerships, the other partner has a duty, both of you have a duty to build trust. And sometimes women don't, they don't say what they want. Yep. And that can be a way to build trust. So what are the things women are afraid to say in a relationship and why are they afraid to it? And how does that lead to not building trust? Yeah. So there, what we're looking for is to be congruent. We trust congruent people when what your energy and your affect is projecting is in congruence with what you're saying. And what I found through my research, and these are big generalities, obviously there are outliers. So if anyone doesn't hear themselves in this conversation, that's cool. But men, other than men on the narcissistic or avoidant spectrum with without pathology, are much more honest. They're much more direct. Like, I don't like him or that, no, I don't want to do that. Or actually, this would feel better, you know, in general. I ran groups of men and I ran groups of women. And, and I have seen this in, in my work. Women, because of the people pleasing, because of the tend and befriend tendencies that we have to appease and to belong and to not, you know, ruffle the waters, to not make people go out of their way for us, all of these things, we can really not be direct. I think it starts with the beginning of a relationship. One of the biggest struggles that I see women having are telling men what they really want, telling partners, I want to be committed. Where is this going? I am interested in motherhood. It's this tiptoeing of like, oh, it's too soon. And I'll be a weirdo if I say that on the first date, it'll make me look desperate. And we have all of these unspoken expectations, all of these hurts and resentments that build up. And what I found is a big part of it is I don't think women have the language to say these things in a way that feels both boundaried and kind. And I find that when I help women find the words to speak truth in these moments, it frees them up because it's like you don't, setting this boundary doesn't have to feel or look like what we thought it did. It can say, you know, I don't think that this was in your intention at all, but I'm feeling a little yucky because I got all dressed up and I was waiting for you to pick me up. And then when that thing, when you canceled plans, it just, it didn't feel quite right. And I just wanted to be really responsible and let you know that rather than withhold it and not like finding that kind of language, because that's the stuff that we cross our arms and see the inside and say, we're fine. Mm. And we're not trustworthy in those moments. And, and people feel love for people they feel safe with. And we see all the ways in which, and they're valid, that men cannot be safe. But I invite women to really look at the ways that they aren't safe, where they are expecting mind reading, where they aren't communicating their needs. It frees up a lot of energy because you're not fighting over silly things. One of the biggest things I've learned is not expecting a partner to read my mind when it comes to both little and big things. And for a long time, because of, I guess, my trauma that I've experienced is kind of the best way I have to put it. 
it wasn't my intent to make them work so hard to try and figure it out and then ultimately fail. But when I had something to say, it wouldn't come out. And I was like stuck in my own body, frustrated that they didn't just know. And how could they not do what I imagined them to do? And since unlocking what I call like my throat chakra, which is just the ability to find the the words for what you feel and kind of put my trauma aside, recognize that it's like taking a hold on me, recognize that I'm in a triggered state. And similar to, you said something earlier today that you pushed yourself to do something uncomfortable. Oh, you said it too, to say thank you to push myself to say what I'm really feeling, even though like my face is hot and my palms are sweaty and my heart is beating. Doing it one time, two times, three times completely allowed me to say, this is what I'm feeling, you know? And and sometimes it escalates from there for a little bit, but then it comes down, but it surely doesn't escalate the way it used to where it was an explosive fight of not using words because I wouldn't actually say what I was trying to feel and it turned into a whole fight about something else. Yes. Yeah, it's just it gets so complex because we're afraid to say what we want and what went wrong. And, oh, it's fine. I'll just tuck it away. Don't worry about it. You know, that people pleasing nature that you said, too, that just kind of like builds up. The pressure cooker does explode. And then we're fighting about something, but we're not fighting about that thing. We're fighting about all the things that came before. And I found, you know, the gift of doing this and I always it's so simple and everyone who's a therapist or anybody in relationships knows, but like that I feel stuff is the game changer. It's personal responsibility. Feelings are not up for negotiation. And when you communicate this way, well, they are for some people, but those are the people you want to be mindful of, right? But when you communicate this way, you see if someone has the ability to meet you there. And so starting this from the beginning, like, oh, you know, I I would love to see you on this date, but it would feel best for me to do it a little bit earlier. I feel 10,000 times better if I get enough sleep at night. I know, make, you know, make a joke about it, but like setting these boundaries and taking up space, but in a playful light, like self-honoring way, we then create a life that's we're not resentful of um, as, as women. And we also then see if someone can meet us there. If he's, if the person you're on a date with is like, well, no, I'm not going to cherish your feelings and try to pivot. That's information that we need. So not communicating this way, not taking up space, we block ourselves from getting really key information about people from from early on. Personal responsibility when in a triggered state is one of the hardest things to embody. And it takes a lot of work and a lot of knowing of yourself and where your heart throat is hot and where your trauma is. But we, bec- the more that we do that, the more trustworthy we become. And again, people are listening to this call who will do that. And the person that they're communicating with won't hold space for them. But then that's information that you need to see how you need to re- shift and evolve in this relationship and whether it serves you or meets you. So true. So true. Great advice. Another thing that you say that I think so many women need to hear, I'm specifically thinking of one woman in my life, and I know she listens to the podcast. So if you're listening, this is for you, is this idea that an individual needs to be healed first before entering a new relationship or getting back out there, going on a date. And I love that you've tackled this on your Instagram because it's something that I personally, even though I might've thought that I was healed when I met my husband, Evan, oh my gosh, the transformation and growth that 
he has held, not he has done for me, you know, but the, the growth that he has allowed me to go through wouldn't have been possible without the container that he provided for me. And I'm so glad that I didn't wait for all the pain to go away because that would have never happened. And yeah, just tell us about why people think that and why they maybe shouldn't wait to be fully healed to allow someone new in. Yeah, I I think there's a lot of language and positioning of this idea in sort of like the law of attraction sort of realm. And this like, if this isn't caught, you're not causing this in your life because you are not vibrating on that wavelength or you're blocking financial success. Because so I think the clients that I've worked with who have the most like discomfort around this are getting sort of that messaging from, from those sources. And I think for me, and this is just my own personal belief, is that there's a difference between this law of attraction idea and like co-creating with your divine plan for your life with whatever your source is and like trusting that certain things are not coming to you for your highest good. So I think that that's, this conversation comes from there. And so I'll have a lot of people be like, am I just attracting this person because he's mirroring to me something that's still within me? Sometimes, sometimes we're attracting someone who's not giving because we don't, we haven't worked on receiving, but sometimes the lesson is to show up or to swiftly move on or to, to say not a fit for me. This is nuanced too. So none of this is black and white and it and it's a spectrum question for everybody. But sometimes we do need to heal certain things in order to be able to see what it is that we want. Sometimes we need to heal receiving. Sometimes we need to heal worth stories in our career, whatever it might be. Sometimes that is the breakthrough. And sometimes it is in the doing that we heal. You know, I've found, and I say this all the time, clients can read everything that I give them. We can coach all day long. It's applied, it's integrated, it is mastered. The muscle is built when you are with a person Mm. on a date in your trigger, not sitting cozy with your cat in your lap talking to me. Oh, I see. I see. So we need to do the thing to build the muscle. I always say, and I give this example to my clients who are like, I'm just going to sit this one out. I'm like, not going to date for a year. And I'm like, but what you really want is partnership. Correct. And sometimes that, you know, sabbatical or time to regroup, to get armed with tools, to go into dating. Now I'm not arguing for people to go into dating, like willy nilly, unhealthy expectations, no tools, no guarding your heart, not that, but to be completely figured out. I don't know if you know anybody. I don't know anybody who only met their person once they were completely, we're never completely figured out. That's the thing. I think sometimes we expect to have all those answers or to, to make, like I said, like that pain go away or to feel really confident in this aspect of our life. And I totally agree. A sabbatical of dating after a heartbreak or after whenever you need it, some time to be alone is the most recharging thing. But I guess I kind of see a lot of women who have a hard no on dating because they're in this sabbatical, whatever, and there's no foreseeable end date to it, yet they want a partnership. That's what they say. They want children and a family and, you know, that, that way of life. And it, I guess maybe it's my own struggle because I love these people who I'm thinking about and wanting that, seeing their potential, knowing that they could kind of, you know, get there if they just said yes a little bit more. openness in their energy to see Mm. what the universe might bring it. Exactly. And that doesn't mean, you know, I think as I've gotten older and my friends have gotten older and we're women, the biological clock starts to tick and things definitely change when it comes to how we approach dating. But 
a bad date doesn't mean that you should go back into your shell or that there's nobody out there for you. Um, I think what I have experienced is like every person that I've met on a date has allowed me to learn more about myself. So I don't believe that there are such things as bad dates or that you should, you know, give up because there's no one out there. I agree with you. When dating becomes exhausting, it's usually an indication that there's a lack of boundaries or the approach to dating, the expectations around dating need to be managed. So I do a lot of this and I, a lot of my analogies come from the sea. (laughs) It's sort of like, (laughs) you know, women like dating is casting a net, you know, and it's trying to pull in what it is that you want. And, and you're going to catch unfortunately plastic in our sea. Hopefully we can get a hold of that. You're going to catch shrimp. You're going <laughs> to catch an old boot, you know? And it's like, if you, ho- you go on a bad date or you get, grab a boot and you're like, oh, there's no fish in the entire sea. I'm going to go back to my hut. No fisherman does that. They're not like done, never going to fish again. They know it's just analogy. that part of the sea or they go to another one or they get a different hook or they wait it out. The one thing that I want to say to your point about like, I'm just, I'm not there is like doing personal work is working towards your future relationship. But if someone came to me and said, I want to run a marathon. And then they said, I want to coach with you about that. And this is my running plan. And then they're like, you know, I'm just going to take a break from running um, this month. And I'm just not going to run because I need time for me. You don't build up the stamina. You don't put yourself in the race. You don't, you're not out there to be able to cross the finish line. So when people tell me, and there are real timelines that do affect women. So it's not that they're as significant as we always see them to be, but they are biological realities for many women. If it's something that's important to you, I'm more interested in arming you with ways to protect your heart, set boundaries, date in a really enlightened and like expectation managed way. And when that happens, dating doesn't become exhausted. You're not saying yes to dates that aren't right. You're not letting people waste your time in the DMs. You're saying it feels best for me to talk live on the phone. You're only saying yes to coffee dates first. You're not taking yourself off the market for a guy you've known for two weeks and then feeling heartbroken when it fizzles in three months. You're doing things to manage your longevity in the dating arena. And I think that Mm -hmm. changes everything for women. They feel empowered and boundaried. When you just are swiping and you don't know how to say, stop wasting my time or, you know, those that get exhausting. And those are the things that then drive women off. Now, online dating isn't the only way you're going to meet people, but 40% of people right now meet that way. Mm, Probably more with the pandemic, right? Yeah. I always say for women, online dating is only about you showing up and saying, hey, I'm here. And you can limit the amount of time you swipe. You can be open in your energy obviously now the world is opening up in different ways. So you can work on yourself while keeping the door open at least a little bit to what it is that you want. And yeah, I've, I, I was in a much better place when I met my husband. I do believe the personal development work I did, let me see him, let me call him in, but the work is not done. Then, then mm-hmm. you have a baby, then you have a yes. this, or then you move, or then you have a career change. And then you have a whole nother set of things to grow through. So true to grow through. I love that. Not go through to grow through. That's a great distinction. Well, thank you so much for your wisdom and your time. We're going to put all your information below so people can check you out, maybe work with you. And hopefully one day on the Instagram, you will do a post just on your hair because that's what we want. (laughs) You've got beautiful hair and that's where the secrets are kept. (laughs) I'll tell you, my hair didn't start growing until I stopped the toxic relationship patterns. I believe it. I believe it so much. Like all of a sudden, like a weed. 
anxiety and that that dark energy yes. it definitely actually does affect hair growth <laughs> 100% I was like what is happening but it's a nice byproduct of doing this work the people I know who have the most amazing hair you included really have done the inner work and they're doing it every day and it's so cool how our bodies are um, our health and what like looks shiny on the outside is dependent on what we're putting into it on the inside, not eating necessarily, but yeah. really just the thoughts, the energy, the currents and all of that. So that was just a light way yeah. for us to wrap up I this episode. Yeah. <laughs> but thank you, Tiffany. And we, we didn't even get to so much that I want to get to. So maybe a part two relationship stuff seems to hit big with my audience. So we'll, we'll pick back up. We'll see you again soon. Thank you, dear. You wouldn't expect to hear that we're America's third best city for beer like this one. Or home to vibes like this. And this. It might surprise you that we're top 10 for immersive art that's like. Whoa. And hmm. not to mention, we have one of the top zoos in the country. So can a city with the country's best pro soccer team, ranking as a top culinary destination in the world, be in your own backyard? Yes, Columbus. Plan your summer at experiencecolumbus.com slash summer. During the Right Rug Flooring Hello Summer Sale, you'll find savings throughout the store, all backed by the right price guarantee, including carpet with a lifetime stain warranty, only $159 installed with pad. That's right, $159 includes expert installation as soon as tomorrow. Visit rightrug.com, R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com to find a showroom near you or schedule a free in-home shopping appointment. Say hello to summer and save. Right Rug Flooring, right here, right now. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org.